Hello and welcome to the Life's Too Short podcast. This is Jason Medina. And Lisa Hurley. We bring you another special socially distanced episode sponsored by Partners in Care. I know you're still working from home. Um, I am back to working in the office, so I did go get my coffee on the way in. And Ah. today I stopped at um, Kennedy's Coffee House. I ordered the Velvet Elvis. Interesting. But I'm not sure why it's called the Velvet Elvis. It's a latte with caramel and vanilla. Ooh. I mean, how does that relate to Elvis? I thought you might know. I don't know because all the Twinkies he ate just had <laughs> cream in the middle of them. Not, I, 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 I don't know. I, when I hear you say Velvet Elvis, it reminds me of a book. There was a pastor. His very first book was Velvet Elvis and talks about the whole painting and, you know, it was like this touch and feel thing. Yeah, maybe that's it. Like Velvet Elvis, it's smooth and yeah. velvety. I don't know. It was good. I mean, I really enjoyed it. Well, I'm really excited for our guest today. I am too. Our first guest from out of state. I feel like we're that's that's big time for us. I think I think we've reached a new echelon of the Life's Too Short podcast. I think so too. Pretty this cool. Is exciting. It, it yes. opens up all the states now. You not not just Bend or just not just Oregon. <laughs> I know Bend is not a state. <laughs> Well, once once we open it up to the the non-contiguous states, and then if we ever go internationally, maybe we can talk to someone from England. How cool would that be? Love the accent. I had so many professors from England, and there's just something about a professor having a British accent. You think they know so much more than, than it's us. It's so true. If you have a British accent, it doesn't matter the content of what you're saying. It sounds smart. Or maybe that's just from the American point of view, it sounds smart. I don't know what other other people would say that have the same accent, but I feel like, wow, you're just like brilliant. Yep. Yeah. You, you know, they could be reading hop on pop, but if it's with the British accent, right. you're like, that is the most profound thing I've ever heard. Hop on pop. I don't know if I ever shared with you when the Harry Potter series came out, I was a I think I have shared on this podcast, I was a pharmaceutical rep, so mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time in my car driving. And so I, I listened to all the Harry Potter books. The Harry Potter books are read with the, in a, with the British accent. I've heard that. I kid you not, my thoughts, I thought in a British accent. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd have to stop myself. Like, I'd be th- you know how you kind of go, well, it's time to go to the store yeah. next. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm not British. <laughs> And my British accent came from watching Monty Python movies. We have really diverged from where we were supposed to be going. We are really excited for our guest today. Deborah Grassman is a uh, nurse practitioner. She resides in Florida and has really dedicated her work to helping veterans. Hi, Deborah. Thanks for being here today. Well, thank you, Lisa and Jason and Partners in Care for wanting to have me and wanting to raise everyone's awareness about veteran care, especially at the end of life. It's our pleasure to to truly have such a guest on our podcast. I'm curious, give us a little bit of your history. Like, are you really from Florida or did you end up in Florida many years ago? Like, give us a, the, the touch points of, of the life of Deborah Grassman. I like her accent. 
Uh-huh. Well, my accent, my accent is a bit uh, Midwestern. However, I did move down here at a, age 19. So I've lived here in Florida for a long time. Went to nursing school here and graduate school here and worked for the VA here in Florida for 30 years, which is how my interest, uh, more than an interest, my passion for doing uh, work with veterans was created. Most of that time was spent doing hospice care for veterans at the VA. So those really are my two passions, hospice and veterans, and those two intersections of patient populations is really what has fueled my post-VA career and the foundation of Opus Peace, which is a nonprofit organization to bring the message about what those veterans at the end of life, in other words, dying veterans, had to teach me as I sat there at their uh, bedside for many years. Well, I know we're going to learn a little bit more about Opus Peace, but I think what I'm curious is when you were starting your career, what was it about caring for veterans that drew you to that specific field? Well, specifically for veterans, I'm sort of embarrassed to tell you this story because uh, as a nursing student, we rotated through all the hospitals in the community, including the VA. When you're in your 20s, you're very arrogant, as I was. And I noticed that these veterans seem to be different than the community hospitals And as I said, I was just arrogant enough to think that I could fix them. Honestly, that's why I chose to go work at the VA. It took several years for me to realize that I wasn't there to fix them. And in fact, I, uh, the first thing I needed to do was to allow them to change me. Mm. And so as I was broken open essentially to the burdens that they were carrying and started just listening to how they were carrying those burdens. And then when I moved later into end-of-life care, and often, as you all know, there's often a wisdom that emerges for everybody at the end of life. Everything changes when you're given a terminal diagnosis. Everything shifts. And what you thought was so important is not so important anymore. And things you didn't think were so important are suddenly right there in front of you to try to urgently complete. So that's kind of really what what drew me. I'd have to say my arrogance (laughs) is what drew me initially (laughs) to veterans. (laughs) Then, as I said, they, they, they taught me what I didn't know. And fortunately, I was able to to hear that. Is there one or two particular stories that you can recall of a veteran who was able to hand you life's wisdom? I would say for the first 10 years of my VA career, I harbored a prejudice against veterans with PTSD from Vietnam. So my, my thinking was sort of like this. You know, the war was over a long time ago. They just need to get over it. They just need to get on with it. And, you know, what's with the long hair and tattoos? You know, what's that all about? Blah, 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 blah. One time our hospital was doing a call for veterans artwork from throughout the whole state of Florida to do a display. And that day, I on the day of this display, I go to this, it was a huge conference room filled with hundreds of paintings uh, from veterans. And I'm going through Lickety Split until I get in front of this one painting 
which stopped me in my tracks because the painting was a picture of a veteran's face, close up, just about this much of his face. And it had the reflection in his pupil of what he was seeing. And what he was seeing was a hut, you know, a native's hut burning down in Vietnam. What was even more important than what he was seeing was how he was reacting to what he was seeing. Because in the other eye, he was crying. His tear was a tear of blood. He was crying blood. And that, to me, opened my eyes because it was his loss of vitality, you know, blood being the vital source of life. And suddenly I saw what that soldier saw. But more importantly, my heart felt what he was feeling. That's when not only my eyes were opened, but my heart was open. And the reason I think that's important is because, you know, we all have prejudices. If we think we have no prejudice, that's the real problem, isn't it? Because we all have this human brain that acts as a filter, and it's about bringing that filter out of the dark into the light so we can see how it is impacting our relationships. So when I talk about doing care with people who have been traumatized, people who may have PTSD, when we harbor prejudices about what that is like or how it should be or shouldn't be or any of those kinds of things, and we project that onto people, then that becomes a barrier for connection. So I would in many ways say that my impact, my ability to be a healing agent, if I can uh, put it in those terms, really started that day. And the first 10 years, <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, I said all the right things. Those first 10 years, I was I was wanted to be a good nurse, but veterans never opened up to me, you know, even though I said all the right things. So um, any rate, that that's kind of the, the veteran that his name was Tommy Bills. And so I called him just to tell him what his artwork had done to, to transform me in, in an instant. And I acknowledged, I confessed to him the prejudice I had held and his reaction. He, he laughed. He laughed. He said, so many people do react just the way you do. But he said, very few people have the courage to, to actually acknowledge it and be changed mm-hmm. by it. When you're taking care of, of veterans, you just kind of think of them the same as patients anywhere else, when in fact their military history does impact them even after they leave the military. And what I saw in doing hospice work for 27 out of my 30 years there is that it often surfaces unbidden. Some of those memories surface unbidden at the end of life. So sometimes that can really complicate peaceful dying. It sometimes causes agitation you know, in those last few days of of life. When that does occur, it's really important to be able to create a a safe environment where they do not have to feel agitated. In your TED Talk, which I would encourage all of our listeners to Google Deborah Grassman's TED Talk, it really is fabulous. You talk about forgiveness. Is that part of why at the end of life, if veterans haven't I guess in some way forgiven themselves that that then could 
have some difficulty until that happens to have a peaceful passing? Many veterans have already come to grips with those kinds of issues before they ever get to hospice. It's something that they have reckoned with already. The literature talks about the moral injury that can occur when you have killed someone else, for example. We would often see these kinds of moral injuries. I shouldn't say often. We would sometimes see moral injuries surface at the end of life. And I think one of the reasons it does is because when you're getting ready to meet your maker, however you want to conceptualize that, but when you're facing death in the next few weeks or so, getting ready to meet your maker, you know, you start thinking automatically, you start thinking about those kinds of things and regrets surface and those kinds of things. So if you haven't come to terms with that previously, it's often kind of pressing right there in front of, in front of you. I think in my TED talk, I talk about a man who, you know, was agitated. He told me he, he wanted to tell me something, but he said he was too ashamed. See the shame. Uh-huh. He was too ashamed to even say it out loud. And then he motioned for me to come down near him. And he said to me, he, he literally whispered. He whispered in my ear and he said, do you have any idea how many men I've killed? And I just shook my head. No. You know, that, that's one of those sacred moments you don't want to corrupt with words or give platitudes or anything. Um, and then he said, do you have any idea how many throats I've slit? This is a World War II vet. And you think about how those guns were back then. They had bayonets at the, at the end of their guns. And again, I just shook my head. No, and see, and, and stayed in that man's suffering with him holding that suffering with him without judgment, without platitude. So then it was a matter of of forgiveness. And I asked him, I just said, would it be meaningful if I said a prayer asking for forgiveness for the things you saw and did? And, And he said, yes. I placed my hand firmly on his heart just to kind of anchor him because when you're anxious and upset, you know, your energy's up high and you kind of disconnect from yourself. But when you can help people get grounded, stay firm, tenderly staying in your own body in that regard, I anchored his heart. And then I just, I prayed for forgiveness. And that man, I'll never forget, you know, his eyes stayed closed, but his Tears were streaming down his face. And then when he did open his eyes, I mean, this big smile came. <laughs> you know, it was such a reminder to me of how heavy guilt and shame that he had carried all of those decades. You see, it was, it was death. You know, that's the gift that death is. It wakes us up to what's important and what's not. Tell us a bit about soul injury and how that particular term came about. If you can give it a definition, I don't expect there to be a, you know, a hard and fast box, but how would you define soul injury? Well, you're so right, Jason. There is no hard and fast box to put that concept in. And in fact, I think the more you try to define it and box it up and contain it, sometimes the further away you get from, from what it is. 
I think of it as our being. You know, we, we are human beings. Now, how do you define being? How is your mind different than your brain? How is your spirit different than your mind? How is your spirit different than your being? You know, if I were going to try to get an accurate phrase for it, I would call it a being injury. <laughs> but mm-hmm. that, yeah, that probably wouldn't, you know, that, that wouldn't go. It's even just hard to say. <laughs> it doesn't flow quite it as just, nicely. <laughs> it, it, it just doesn't flow. So I have used the term soul injury and it that has no religious connotation. You know, we, we use soul all the time, you know, we'll say soul food or, you know, soul made. And when you look up the definition of the word soul in the dictionary, it actually says the essence of something or someone. It also says the vital part of someone or something. So when I talk about defining soul injury, my thinking is that it's a wound to our sense of self, to our being. And one of the ways that we approach soul injury, first of all, we would say that soul injuries are caused by unmourned loss and hurt and unforgiven guilt and shame. And again, think about hospice care. Those barriers tend to just surface automatically because people's regrets start surfacing. People start questioning, did they live the life that they were meant to have? Regrets often surface as part of really aging in a lot of ways. People automatically sort of review the past and seek meaning for their past. So these kinds of issues tend to surface. So one of the ways that we approach things a bit different, and this is what hospice care has taught us, is essentially this. We already have everything we need in order to be whole. It's already there. It's a matter of removing the barriers that keep us from accessing the wholeness that we already have. We're our own worst enemy. You know, that's a good way of putting it. (laughs) And I can tell you, by working, doing hospice work with veterans of whom, not not all of them were combat veterans, but all of them had been trained for war. Mm -hmm. And I always have found it so paradoxical that when you peel back the layers of these veterans who were trained for war, what you find are people who are seeking and often find peace. They have taught me about peace. The irony is that I would learn lessons about peace from people who had been trained for war. And that, I think, essentially came from doing hospice work because dying people in general Dying people know things that the rest of us do not. I would also say traumatized people know things that non-traumatized people don't know. So now you think about there are thousands of PTSD professionals. There are thousands of hospice professionals. But there's only a handful of people who have specialized in both of those patient populations. And I believe that's what's yielding the lessons that Opus Peace has to, to bring to the world And it's not just lessons about how to die healed. It's not just lessons about how to, for veterans to come to peace. They are lessons for everybody that can be extrapolated to everyone. So you asked about soul injury. 
We started out, you know, the VA and the Department of Defense many years ago, you know, a couple decades ago now, came up with the term moral injury. And when it, and when that term came out, I was so excited because that's what I was seeing at the end of life sometimes with, with uh, veterans. And so I was so glad to finally have a name for it. And it's a, it's a well-fitting name that specifically describes, you know, when your morals have been violated, when your beliefs have been violated in, in a lot of different ways, that's how they would define a, a moral injury. What I found, though, over time was that that was just kind of one area of injury, but there was this whole other area, uh, oftentimes things that had happened in childhood that didn't have anything to do with beliefs, for example, a corruption of a person's beliefs, you know, or sometimes you just think of aging in general. If someone puts all of their identity into their career and then they retire and now they feel like a nobody and they start losing their sense of self, they forget who they really are, that's a soul injury. There's been no corruption. There's been no moral injury. There's been no moral violation. But I've commonly seen people who overly identified with their career that retirement really plummets them into depression. You know, suicide rates are much higher in people. Mm -hmm. What is that? That's a soul injury because we've not energized who we truly are beyond, as the saying goes, our human doing. We are human beings. That's what propelled us to look at, okay, moral injury is sort of a subset of soul injury, you can have a moral injury. And if it causes you to forget who you really are, to become disconnected from who you really are, then you not only have a moral injury, but you also have a soul injury. But I've definitely seen a lot of people who have a moral injury, but they have not forgotten who they are. They, they really can see that this is a separate thing. What is Opus Peace? Well, Opus Peace was created by five of us VA hospice nurses who all worked together on an inpatient hospice unit. Uh, However, I also worked throughout the hospital as the nurse practitioner. I did consultation throughout the hospital, especially in the ICUs, the medical units, and the outpatient clinic. We had this kind of intense inpatient unit with a very short length of stay. So it was almost like this acute hospice unit. With, it was like a live learning lab that really taught us very, very quickly about some of these distinctions that I described. Well, after we all retired from the VA, we had this like body of knowledge. You know? And it was, you know, and whenever we would, you know, I was often asked, I've been presenting way before I left the VA and people like yourselves would come forward and say, oh my gosh. And people in the VA were going, oh my gosh, you're describing things that haven't been described before. It was actually a physician up in New York um, that headed the whole New York area region for palliative care that approached me and said, you're onto something that has never been described before and you need to write a book. And he actually helped me. He said, you know, just write something down, start writing. And he had, he was well published in hospice and palliative care. And so he encouraged me and, and helped me. And that's how the book Peace at Last came about. Then when we, you know, again, when after I left the VA and my colleagues did as well, we had this body of knowledge. We saw how it could be extrapolated to others, to non-veterans about peace and how to bring 
peace within ourselves. We literally sat around a picnic table in my backyard going, how do we start a foundation? How do we start a non not-for-profit? People started noticing. Honestly, people started noticing. We're, we're an almost all-volunteer agency. I mean, wow. we have only one employee. Everybody volunteers their time. That's how important they think this message is in the benefit that it has. So that's that's really what propels us is people's excitement about the message. What happens if, as a family member, a clinician, a friend, you stumble across a soul injury? How would you advise that person to be present with someone who is acknowledging that soul injury, perhaps for the first time? Well, the way to be present is to create a safe, an emotionally safe environment. Number one, it's sitting down at eye level. It's opening your own heart. And here's the real key. And this is, may sound subtle, and it's not subtle at all. The secret is you can't be afraid of emotional pain. We talk a lot about emotional pain, about grief and all that. But what we do not talk about is our fear of emotional pain. Let me just ask you, Jason and Lisa, how would the world be different if we were not afraid of emotional pain? I'm I'm serious. How would our world be different if we were not afraid? Because if we were not afraid of emotional pain, we wouldn't even have to be having this conversation about how to create a safe, because it would come normally and naturally. You know, children aren't afraid of emotional pain. They're taught to be afraid of emotional pain. But children, you know, they they cry naturally. They go, oh, I got a boo-boo. They go, oh, mama, will you kiss it? There's a kind of a famous story that I just love uh, about a little five-year-old boy comes home late to dinner. And his mom looks at him and goes, why are you so late for dinner? And he says to him, well, I was hel- helping my friend fix his tricycle. And his mother looks at him and says, you don't know how to fix tricycles. And the little boy said, I couldn't fix it, but I could help him cry. That story tells me that we are we know how to be and abide with emotional pain. But mm-hmm. somewhere along the line, we are taught to not do that, to put a smile on people's face instead of to just be with whatever is the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful, to be able to be with the full spectrum. See, we have this real because we're afraid of emotional pain, we deny emotional pain, mm-hmm. we minimize. You know, veterans, they are stoic. I mean, they can be yeah, dying. Yes. They're on their deathbed and they're not going to tell you they're sad. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not really. You know, everything's okay. Everything's fine. And you know the acronym for fine? Freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotionally empty. <laughs> yeah, I've only got a couple days left to live, but I'm just fine. And, and again, I'm not against stoicism because 
man, we need stoicism. I mean, you've got to put your big girl panties on, your big boy pants on a lot of times and, <laughs> and you know, do what needs to get done to get through the day. I don't always feel like going to work, but I'm going to go because my patients need me, that type of thing. The problem is the stoic, stoicism often gets used as a wall that people hide behind as opposed to what I tell people is use your stoicism more like a door that you can open and close at will, as opposed to a wall that ends up imprisoning you behind it. You know, at the end of life, that stoic wall almost always crumbles. Thank Mm -hmm. goodness, because it takes a lot of energy to keep that stoic wall up when you're dying. But again, I can't tell you how many times when I would have a veteran on our hospice unit and we're working through the unmourned loss and hurt, the unforgiven guilt and, and shame and allowing the stoicism to come down. And, and they look at me and say, why did I have to be dying in order to learn how to do this? When you talk about being with other people, the first thing we have to learn how to do is to be with ourselves. If we're going to be with someone who has a soul injury, I guarantee you that there is loss and hurt surrounding that. Well, if we don't know how to be with our own loss and hurt, then we're going to shut it down in them. We're going to give them a platitude. We're going to tell them, oh, this will pass. Things will get better. Oh, you were doing the best you could with what you had at the time. Even though all those things are true, I'm not saying they're not true. They are true. What we're really saying is, don't tell me about your grief and pain. I don't want to hear about it. So, you know, it really starts with validating the loss, validating the hurt, validating the guilt. You know, we've all done things we should or shouldn't do. So the minute someone expresses guilt and you try to take that away from them, oh, you shouldn't feel guilty about that. You were just doing what you were ordered to do. You've just robbed them of their opportunity to express guilt. And maybe it was well-founded. Maybe they did do something they should or should not have done. That's for them to say, not for me to tell you. Now, on the other hand, I will say this. I've heard a lot of irrational guilt. And irrational guilt, when someone has no control over something that they did, Uh I mean, I cannot tell you how pervasive survivor's guilt is in combat veterans. It is pervasive. So you might have someone that feels guilty because they'll say, he was such a good soldier. It should have been me who died. It should have been my Jeep that got hit instead of his. Wait a minute. You had no control over that. How can you feel guilty about that when you had no control? So what that really is, what they're really not wanting to feel is how helpless they were. So it's not about trying to get them to not feel guilty. It's having them, they're covering up their helplessness, which is an awful feeling. When you, That's one of the most vulnerable feelings you can have is helplessness. And so when you're feeling really, really helpless, what do you do? You pretend like you could have controlled it. So if you could have controlled it, then you can feel guilty. Because so irrational guilt gives you the illusion that you could have controlled it. So that keeps you, that numbs out the feelings of helplessness. So what I would do with veterans when I would hear irrational guilt is I would say, I cannot imagine how helpless you must have felt when you saw that, when you saw your buddy, whatever he had just told me, uh-huh. that he had no real control over. Yeah. But he's acting as if he did. 
how are we doing today? Are we really serving our veterans, supporting our veterans well from how it was maybe in the beginning of your career to to now? Well, I would say in some ways, yes, and in some ways, um, not so much. Um, certainly the big yes. I mean, you have to realize, you know, I, I went back at this point 38 years when I started at the VA 38 years ago, and at that time, PTSD, Agent Orange, all of that, you know, Vietnam vets were even, World War II vets even would uh, say that Vietnam vets were wimps because they had this PTSD stuff, you know. So there was so much prejudice. I mean, you know, PTSD didn't even make it into the DSM until 1980. You know, the prejudice that I had toward people with PTSD from Vietnam was not unusual. I can tell you it was not, it was very prevalent in health and the VA healthcare culture, and it's not anymore. So, you know, when we talk about creating a safe environment, having programs that respond, those types of things, it's it's definitely improved a lot. I think some of it is there's a misconception that the VA and the Department of Defense is the answer to post-veteran service. And it's not. All of us, all of society bear responsibility and no one is immune. And for us to lay it all on just the, the VA or the Department of Defense, I think, is irresponsible for us as civilians. I'm really proud of hospices and palliative care programs and NHPCO and Hospice Foundation of America, those organizations who really rallied around the discoveries that Opus Peace was making. I mean, we started the pinning ceremonies that's done at, uh, in hospices. Uh, it was our little VA, you know, that's the little five nurses there that started that back in the end of the 1990s and then brought it forward into the Hospice Veteran Partnership. And, you know, now it's a standard practice to bring that honoring ceremony to, to every veteran. Thank you for that, Deborah. I will say I've had the pleasure at Partners in Care um, to attend many of the pinning ceremonies that our Veterans Outreach Coordinator initiated. And it is just such an amazing event. And it's hard to even explain, but you can just see it in the, in the veterans being honored. Just you can feel just how appreciative and proud and um, it's so profound. I mean, it's it's palpable, really. What a great thing. So thank you. Well, you are welcome. And as I said, you can thank those 10,000 veterans that I took care of at the VA because, the you know, we started with just one veteran. We saw the impact and then we started, you know, we did it a few more times and then we started doing it with all of our patients and we saw what it did. The but that I'm going to tell you about when I say that it's is that thank you is not enough. Mm-hmm. And pinning ceremonies that only thank you and honor veterans, I'm going to say is missing the boat. Pinning ceremonies are great. Don't misconstrue what I'm saying. But that's the vehicle to achieve a goal. It should not be the goal itself. The pinning ceremony and thanking a veteran and honoring a veteran should open the door to the story. You see, if you're not collecting the story, especially the untold story, see, it's the untold stories that can surface at the end of life. I had a Navy veteran talk about some of the things he did on shore leave when his ship would come into port. And the things he was embarrassed by, 
the regrets he had, and it didn't fit the image of being a good sailor. You have to remember that we as Americans project onto our military that they always make the right decision. They always do the right thing. They're patriot. I mean, you know, they're held to this standard that the rest of us aren't held to. If you're projecting that on, you're coming in to honor this, this person and they're trying to tell you, well, I did some things that weren't so honorable, and you shut that down because, oh, no, but then you just shut down that untold story that can often be nagging at them, can be a source of unmourned loss, can be a source of a facade that they really want to let down, to let their truth be known and be told, to reckon with some of that. All of the teaching that I try to do when I'm training people is to recognize a spectrum. So going back to your question quite a while ago about what do you do with a soul injury when it surfaces, Jason, when you ask that, to create a safe emotional environment, you have to create a a full spectrum space. Mm. And so when I say without judgment, that if you feel ashamed, your shame can come forward. I'm not going to try to talk you out of it. I'm not going to try to put a positive spin on it. I'm not trying to going to try to give you a Bible verse that tells you, you know, it's all okay. Allowing them to have an honest acknowledgement of where they're actually at. Yes. Validating their suffering. So what would be your takeaway? As you mentioned, it's everybody's um, responsibility to support and honor our veterans authentically. For our listeners, what are some takeaways that we can do to do that, to, to really feel like we are authentically helping the movement to support our veterans fully? Well, I think expressing gratitude is important, but when you say, you use that word authentically, don't rotely do it to satisfy your own needs to feel like you're doing that. Typically for myself, I don't routinely thank every veteran necessarily. I want to hear the story first and find something specific to thank them for. The second thing I would often ask the question, and I think it is an essential question, and it's this. Is there anything from the military that might still be troubling you now? And then you sit there quietly, create empty space. So it's not the kind of question you're going to ask if you've only got 30 seconds It's not the kind of question you ask, you're standing up and the other person's and the veteran's sitting down. It's the kind of question that you have to be willing to hear the answer. What I found with veterans is they really are very forgiving. So if I would go too far or if I would probe where I shouldn't have and I could see then their reaction and I would just say, I'm so sorry. I, I, you know, I didn't really listen to you a minute ago when you told me that was kind of forbidden territory. I'm so sorry. I, I will not go there again. You know, whatever it is, you know, they're, they're very forgiving that you could be respectful. The other thing I would say is you don't ever push people to tell their stories of trauma. I think we do damage when we do that. I also think we do damage if we don't know how to create a safe emotional environment so that story can come forth if they so choose. The chaplain on our team used to put it this way. He said, it's unethical 
to ask our patients to do what we ourselves are unwilling to do. My job's not just to help you feel whatever you're feeling. My job, in my mind, is to create a safe place so that you can connect with the part of yourself that's already strong enough, courageous enough to be holding your pain because that's why that's the part of you that is holding your pain already. See, that's the secret that we don't talk enough about. Mm -hmm. That's the work of Opus Peace. Well, Deborah, I cannot express how grateful Lisa and I are to have you. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for, and I say this with sincerity, thank you for your service <laughs> as you have as you have opened up this profound wisdom of life to really create space for others as we all carry our own injuries and to be okay with that so that we can help others be okay as well and become whole. So thank you. Thank you, so welcome. Thank you for the work you're doing to spread the message about soul injury. Yes. Your website is opuspeace.org. They can also get soulinjury.org. Also gets you there if it's easier to remember either one. And you can also go on YouTube to find Deborah Grassman's TED Talk. And there will be notes on all of this for those who um, subscribe to our podcast. So Deborah, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon in sunny, warm Florida. Well, this is Jason Medina. And Lisa Hurley. And you've been listening to Life's Too Short. Life's Too Short.